Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today, I get to be told by my guests that my questions are pretty intense, uh, which is funny because the guest today is Rich Roll. Um, I went on Rich Roll's show when I was promoting my book called Pretty Intense back in the beginning of 2018. And I did three shows. I did Rich's show, Lewis Howes, and Joe Rogan. And after I did those shows, I mean, I didn't even know what podcasts were barely at that point. I was like, I'm going to sit down for how long with somebody? I got to tell them how grateful I was for that experience because it's by doing those podcasts that I fell in love with them. And I was like, that's a really fun format. I love going deep. Like I have energy for that. The seven or 15 minute interviews are like, you're going to ask me the same thing everyone always asks me, and it's not going to be that interesting in my mind. Um, okay, Rich Roll is he's an ultra endurance athlete, maybe how you've heard of him. He's written many books, um, including an autobiography about his story, cookbooks, as well as now he has books out called Voicing Change. Uh, volume two is out, and they are highlighting through photography, beautiful photography, as well as little synopsis of stories from his guests. He's also a public speaker and, of course, a podcaster. Yeah, what do two podcasters talk about? You know, we talked about life. We talked about, like, how it goes, how he was able to get to where he's at. Transformation was a big topic at the beginning. And he loves to talk to people about it, but I'm like, you're a transformation guy. So we got to got to hear the stories about what that's like for him so that maybe he can help others understand, you know, that process. Uh, and then we just riffed on life. You know, what, what, what's going to solve the world's problems? I hope you love the show and you hit subscribe and the bell for notifications. And please leave your comments below about maybe your thoughts as to how we could change the world for the better. Where were we with the uh, podcast before the podcast again, talking about how awesome podcasts were? <laughs> Yeah, it's, how how enriching your experience has been, how many amazing people you get to meet, the how the research nourishes you. It's all yeah. good. I think of it as like almost a uh, a phenomenal scam to hoodwink amazing people and hijack them and make them spend time with you and as a result, you get nourished, you get to share that with the audience and and then a lot of these people as I'm sure you've had this experience like become your friends or they become, you know, people in your life, which is such a cool thing. There's just something magical that happens when you like escape out of the old paradigm of the seven minute interview and or 15 minute interview and you enter this like hour, hour and a half or whatever it ends up being podcast or there's like a, a real special connection. Yeah, well, I think if you're gonna talk to somebody for an extended period of time, uh, hopefully you will get to see, you'll get a glimpse of who that real person is. And if you can establish trust and a sense of comfort, you know, I'm talking as a host and I'm sure you've experienced this as well. Um, when you can kind of uh, establish that emotional connectivity and make them feel safe, then they're yeah. more likely to uh, be more vulnerable. And I think everybody, listen, people like to talk about themselves too. And if you can be truly interested in that person, uh, you you are in a position to, you know, discover a little bit of magic, I think. Do you have any, like, techniques? Do you have any certain things that you do <laughs> that, yeah, so you do? I, the laugh is a yes. I mean, not not techniques. I mean, for me, it's, it's always an intuitive uh, adventure. But I have learned that, um, that I have to be 
naturally curious in the person that uh, I'm sitting across from. Um, if I'm not feeling it within myself, then the experience is probably going to be flat for the listener or, or the viewer, even if that person is amazing. Like I'm not the right host to have that conversation with that person. So, um, you know, booking the guests is something that I still do. Uh, you know, I can't imagine having anyone else book it because mm. it's my own, you know, curiosity. I think that drives the whole thing. And I think research is really important. There are certain hosts who can just, you know, show up without any preparation and and create something amazing out of that. I'm not one of those people. You know, I have to do a lot of homework, uh, but then I have to like let go of that homework and try to just show up and be as present as possible and allow the experience to be what it wants to be rather than like holding on tight. Like I need to make sure that we hit these topics. Like I try to, you know, it's a dance of like, okay, there's a certain direction I want to go, but I also, you know, have to sit back and, and let it be what it wants to be. And I think within that um, is the importance of, of, of listening, you know, instead of being caught up in your head about, oh my God, what's my next question going to be? Or, you know, I just had a brain fart and I can't remember what I wanted to talk about. And just, you know, being present, I think, allows you to kind of flow with, you know, wherever the guest wants to go. How much of the time would you say your interviews end up um, following uh, any kind of intended flow or question? Like what percentage of the things that you think you're going to hit on do you hit on? Uh, yeah, I think it depends on the type of guest. Like if I'm having a scientist, for example, on then it's going to be much more outline driven. Like there are certain things I want to make sure to cover to make mm. it as uh, impactful for the audience as possible, as opposed to somebody who just has an amazing story. That's going to yeah. be a different type of approach. But on average, I'd say, you know, maybe in the 70 to 80 percent range of what I want to cover. I think it's important to leave the audience not exhausted, but wanting more. So, uh, you know, rather than like, this is a lecture and we have to cover all of these things. And at the end of that experience, everyone is exhausted. Like that's not the experience I'm trying to cultivate. Like I want them, I think there's, you, you know, like there's something about um, covering most of it. And then if that person is left from the experience, like excited about it, then they're gonna go on their own adventure to dig deeper and mm -hmm. learn more about that subject matter or, or that person. Um, mm. And I think also you can run into the problem of preparing too much where totally. you know the answer to every question. Oh so my gosh, you have to yes. kind of hold back on the prep too. So you have the opportunity of being surprised like, oh my God, I didn't know that. Tell me more about that. Because if you already know, then you know, you're gonna, your reaction is gonna be flatter than it would be if it was a more organic experience. So it is that tension between you know, being prepared but also being uh, you know, uh, not so schooled up that uh, you can kind of be surprised and put yourself in the position of the audience. What do you think makes a good guest? I think this is kind of an interesting question because uh, you know, sometimes there's unexpectedly really good guests. So what for you, what for you makes that really good, good guess? Most important is, is that the guest wants to be there. They're not there because a publicist told them they needed to do it. Like they're there, they're genuinely excited. Like, oh my God, I get to sit down and talk to Danica. Like, how cool is that? So they're ready and good to go. I think that's important. Um, I think, 
you know, people who have a grasp of, of how to tell a good story is important. Yeah. Not everybody knows how to do that. It's a skill and a talent in its own right. Uh, or somebody who really has command over their field of expertise and mm -hmm. not only, you know, is an expert in their field, but has the communication skills to convey that information in a way that uh, isn't too complicated for the audience, but also isn't speaking down to the audience. I think that's right. another, you know, very specific skill set uh, that that not everybody has. And listen, when you do many, many of these, like I've done over 700 at this point, like not everyone is going to crush it. So then the responsibility rests on your shoulders as the host to, you know create the best experience with a guest who's not media trained or doesn't understand, you know, the nuances of how to communicate effectively on a podcast and to, you know, bring out the best of, of, you know, that, that, that person. Where do you think vulnerability fits in with that? And maybe actually define vulnerability. I mean, vulnerability is the, the courage uh, to express something that is intimate to you that isn't necessarily public knowledge that uh, uh, that that reveals uh, a more shrouded truth about that person. It doesn't have to be an embarrassing story. It just has to be something that is emotionally real. And I think vulnerability is hugely important. You know, I've learned to be vulnerable and it's kind of a scary thing to talk about stuff that maybe you'd rather not be part of the public discourse. Um, but I think in sharing, you know, my own vulnerability publicly, it gives other people the courage to uh, think more deeply about their own experiences. And I think it creates um, a connection with the guest and also with the audience. Like if I'm in a podcast conversation where somebody's sharing a story and I wanna go a little bit deeper, I can't expect them to have the courage to, to take that extra step and go someplace maybe they've never gone before if I'm not willing to do it myself. So I always try to lead with vulnerability, which then creates a safer place where the, the trust level in, in increases. And it's not appropriate for all conversations. You know, again, like if I have a medical doctor and I'm trying to learn about something very specific, Maybe vulnerability isn't, you know, really part of that equation. But, you know, if somebody has endured an, an extraordinary hardship and, you know, had struggle in their life and come out the other side, you know, that's a story where vulnerability is super important. And again, it goes back to, you know, trust and safety, like always trying to create like a really um, com comfortable space where, you know, the microphones and the cameras kind of vanish into the background. And it's just, you know, two people who are locked in on each other. And for that reason, like, when I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer a reference to the inner eye chakra, one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul. 
to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyedbydanica.com. Trying to cultivate that emotional connection is super important. So leading with vulnerability is one is one way that I do that. But you know, really listening to somebody, like somebody knows when they're being seen and when they're being listened to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I can figure out a way to uh, you know, know enough about that person where it's like, oh, let's talk about this thing because we can really connect over that. Mm-hmm. And then we're like locked in with each other. Um, then I think we're in a better position for that person to maybe reveal something about themselves that they haven't before or mm-hmm. that is, you know, sensitive. Um, so, you know, I think that's another kind of like little dance. And I, I, I'm not sharing that as a way to manipulate the person, but no. really to no, like you know, get the best out of what they have to say. Yeah. Yeah. This is like kind of a new phase in in society with having so much information now available in this sort of expansive platform arena of podcasts. Um and I mean there's been somewhat long format in the past, of course, but they're gonna be like, you know, uh not much more few and far between. So what do you think the ripple effect of this new delivery of information and vulnerability and sharing and stories and personality, what do you think that 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 ripple effect is in society? I think it's a net positive. You know, I think we're very much in the adolescent phase of of the internet and trying to get our footing with how to manage such a powerful distribution system that connects us in in such a profound way. But also, you know, we've seen how it can be, uh, you know, weaponized or used for not so positive purposes. And I think younger generations are much savvier than older people about trying to separate truth or reality from fiction or manipulation. But on the net, I would say that the podcasting um, world has had an incredible effect on raising awareness and providing people with not just tools and information, but stories to help guide how we think about what it means to be human, you know, what it is that we value, where we want to invest our time and our focus. Like not a day goes by that I don't reflect on what it would have been like when I was a young person trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I could and I could just dial up a podcast of somebody who is excelling in a particular field and listen to them tell the story about how they, you know, got to that place. Like, I just think it's an incredible resource for anybody. We're all trying to level up on some level. We're all trying Mm -hmm. to grow. We're all, you know, maybe less than satisfied with where we're at in life and trying to figure out how to get to that place where we can be more fulfilled or more purpose-driven or happier in our career choices or our relationships. And there's just you know almost an infinite amount of content out there mm-hmm. for free that is yeah. you know, on tap with just a few clicks that can really help a lot of people. And I, I just, I can't think of anything more gratifying for me personally to spend my time doing than to contribute to that. 
Well, you talked about, you know, sharing and and um, it makes me think about how much restriction and um, shadow banning people. And, you know, if this is an opportunity to um, have an opinion or say something, it's not possible that whatever I say or whatever you say every single time, everybody will agree with, you know, or even at any point in time, there'll mm -hmm. always be disagreements. But were you affected in the last couple of years with just how overwhelming the control of um, messaging has been? Uh, was I affected? I mean, I was affected just like everybody else trying to figure out, you know, what's true and what's not. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, who are the authorities that I should be listening to and who are the authority, the authorities that shouldn't be trusted? And, you know, what is the relationship between mainstream media and alternative media? It was very disorienting. You know, I'm somebody who's, you know, pretty online, especially for somebody who's my age. And, uh, and it was, you know, confusing for the most conscientious person trying to make good choices about yeah. their information diet. Um, yeah. Was I affected personally in terms of, of the podcast? Like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I mean, I don't think so. I'm not out, I'm not somebody who's out courting controversy in that right. regard, mm -hmm. um, but I am trying to have important, meaningful conversations about things that affect everybody. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think, the the one of the challenges that that you know i spend a lot of time thinking about is in the heart of napa valley lays somnium which means to dream in latin the somnium vineyard estate is an extension of the love and intensity that i pour into everything i do to experience our wines visit somniumwine.com and use the code somnium to receive a ten dollar flat shipping rate please drink responsibly is the relationship between the quality of content that we choose to put out there versus um, what you know the algorithm favors or mm. becoming uh, you know a prisoner of audience capture. Like I know that if I were to host person X, Y, or Z, uh, that I could create you know a title and a thumbnail for that episode that would attract a lot of attention and probably increase subscriber growth and mm -hmm. create a mini media cycle for being controversial. But I'm not really interested in doing that. Like I'm trying to create timeless conversations that that exist kind of outside, mm -hmm. um, you know, what's popular today. And I think that sure. takes a little bit of maturity and also, you know, may have sacrificed the growth and the the reach uh, of what I'm doing, but I can sleep at night knowing that, you know, I am sort of adhering to my personal values. Yeah. So I don't know if that answered your question. It but. does. It does. And I agree. I love that. I think that um, just no knowing who you are is the most, I think, an important part to the podcast. Actually, that's an interesting question. How has it evolved? Because, you know, I feel like even for myself, like the beginning versus now, I'm like, wow, okay, there's like a form to it. There's like a certain sort of pattern of questions I ask a lot of people. There's a pattern of how I interview people. There's there's a feel to it. So they're definitely listening to the guest, but it's um, there's a part, of course, that always gets guided by me. So there's sort of an identity there. And have has, has that uh, morphed for you or did you discover it? Was there ever an arrival of like after 
200 episodes or 50 episodes or something like that, you go, God, this is what it's, this is my, this is what my show's about. Um, that's a great question. I think uh, the show has told me what it is and what it wants to be through the doing of it. Mm. Uh, I feel like it still adheres quite closely. It hews very tightly to what I, what it's always been, which is interesting conversations with people that inspire me in different ways. And mm -hmm. you know, over 700 episodes, I think themes emerge. Like obviously, I have an interest in endurance sports and mm -hmm. you know, ultra distance trail runners and stuff like that. Like those people tend to you know recur as guests on the show. And that's, you know, something that I'm personally interested in, but also is a very small subculture. Like I understand when I have these people on, those are not going to be massive episodes, but I think that there's a lot of wisdom to be mined from a lot of those individuals. But I think the overarching, you know, theme, if there was one to be articulated, would be transformation. Like how do we, you know, level up every single day? How can we um, change our lives from where we are today and, and you know, grow into this other place. And exploring that, uh, you know, opens up a pretty wide aperture to, you know, looking at, you know, sort of examples of people who have done that in various interesting ways. And then, you know, the mind, body, spirit approach to accomplishing that, which allows me to talk to, you know, all kinds of people from, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, practitioners of various, you know, spiritual, you know, philosophies or academics, again, medical doctors, athletes, entrepreneurs, how do we do this in business, et cetera. So I've always cast a pretty wide net. And again, the, the rule is, you know, oh, is this person somebody who would be compelling and that I'm naturally interested in speaking to? And, and you know, has some wisdom to impart to the audience that would be helpful and practical to, you know, incorporate into their lives. Perfect word, because one of the things that I notice about you or my observation of you is that you've had many transformations. I mean, that's literally in my notes of diving deeper into you. And I was like, you've just gone through so many transformations. You really, I feel like you really have through different mm. phases of your life, everything from uh, how you grew up and not, you know, claiming to be an entrepreneur to um, being, uh, having addiction to being an endurance athlete to having a successful podcast, now books. And it's like, you know, uh, veganism. I mean, there's just so many different, I feel like transformations. So while you ask everyone, you, your main curiosity is transformation. In my opinion, you are like top of the list for people that have had so many magnificent transformations and have so many stories. So it's definitely your turn to tell the story of of how you were able to do that. And what I mean, I guess I'm really curious about what what allows you to be able to move from one phase to another phase. And was it effort or is that something that actually comes natural? Not not everything's easy, but that is seemingly from an observational standpoint very much part of your life yeah well i i appreciate that observation danica i mean i i, I don't i'm not sure exactly how to dive into this i i would say that the changes and the transformations that i've endured in my life are generally uh catalyzed by some kind of pain point you know where yeah. where the pain of my current uh situation exceeded the fear of doing something different and mm. that has typically been my motivator and 
I've gone kicking and screaming into all of these transformations. None of it was graceful, linear, or or overnight. It's, you know, when you kind of look at it in the rear view mirror, me now being an older person, it all kind of looks like it unfolded very naturally and gracefully, but, you know, the lived experience of that was very different. Uh, right. But, you know, as a result of, of having to change or being compelled to change because of pain has taught me a few things about the nature of change itself. And, you know, that began with my struggle with alcoholism and ultimately getting sober and, you know, learning tools for a different way of living, uh, which, you know, I think opened me up to the possibility, A, that, you know, I could change and if I could change, other people could change. And as a result of my participation in the recovery community, being witness, being witness to so many people changing their lives in miraculous ways, and then understanding that, you know, change isn't a static thing. Like we have to continue to grow and iterate. Like there is no stasis. There's no sitting on our laurels. And, you know, yes, I have, you know, weathered that experience and overcome it, but what are the other areas of my life that remain hidden or that I don't want to look at that, you know, require redress and ultimately some level of transformation. And I've kind of, you know, repeated that time and time again, like from addiction issues to transferring addiction issues onto workaholism and my relationship with food and my relationship with my physical self, like all of those have gone, undergone, you know, massive transformations over the years. But mm -hmm. this process still continues. Like yeah. now I'm a parent and I have, teens that have their own issues and you know there's many times where i feel at a complete loss as a parent as to how to you know help these younger people or parent them or guide them in the best way possible and that provides an opportunity for me to have people on the podcast tell me how to do this you're the expert etc so you know as they say in the parlance of recovery the road gets narrower and you know, the, the, the kind of more you grow, the less tolerant you are of other aspects of how you behave mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, ultimately you can't sleep at night until you look at them. And, uh, you know, so that's sort of been the approach to all of it. But it's not like I wake up in the morning and I'm like, what am I going to change today? I'm so excited. <laughs> like I hold on tightly to, you know, my, <laughs> my, you know, errant behavior patterns of which there are still many. Because <laughs> it's easier. I mean, like human nature is to repeat patterns. I think that's like we're programmed mm -hmm. to repeat the patterns that are instilled into us. And so I think maybe the way to uh, get more focused and help people is explaining the process of a transformation, first of which is that you don't want it, right? Like, because the transformation is going to be hard. Like I would say, like, lessons are not meant to be easy. You know, their their lessons are hard. And so maybe mm -hmm. first, what are the signs? Like, as you've been through so many different phases of this, have you been able to um, become more uh, aware and conscious of getting to a certain point where you're like, these things start happening when I know that I need to grow? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge subject matter. I mean, I guess I would begin by saying that, you know, we all do things that we know are not moving our lives forward. Like we know when we're spending too much time scrolling on our phone that we 
probably would be happier and more productive if we were doing something else and yet we keep doing it right that would be a you know a very relatable example of that sure. so the first step in making change is 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 simply awareness like okay this is a problem um and you know kind of snapping out of the denial that like it's fine you know i can keep doing this and really getting honest with yourself to say I know that I would be a happier, more productive person if I could shed this particular thing that is holding me back. So, you know, self-awareness, key, self-honesty, super important. Um, and then I think the first step of, of, of really approaching that change is asking for help and not trying to do it yourself, like regardless mm -hmm. of what the nature of the problem is. Like, cause I think once you, mm confide in another human being that you have a problem and that you would like help, suddenly no longer it's this private thing that's living inside of you. You have publicly announced it or semi-publicly announced it. Uh, and I think that's huge because now it's out there and there's sort of a release or a catharsis with just admitting it. Like that's why, sure. you know, you, when you go into an AA, AA meeting, you raise your hand and you say, you know, my name's Rich and I'm an alcoholic. Like you are making a public declaration of a problem that requires redress. So I think that's huge. Um, and then, you know, with the trusted people with whom you've confided this problem, I think the key, the absolute key beyond anything else in making a change is willingness, the willingness to do something different and the willingness to not only ask for help, but to accept help. So when that trusted confidant says, well, why don't you do this instead of retorting with all the reasons why that's a bad idea and you know how to solve it, just saying, okay, and then doing it and getting into action. Even if those actions are tiny, like uh, maybe I'll reduce my phone consumption, you know, 20% or whatever. They don't have to be massive, gigantic gestures. Like I'm yeah. gonna throw my phone in the ocean and never use a cell phone again. Like those tend to be, you know, uh, losing propositions over the long haul. And what you're really yeah. trying to do is establish um, a new behavioral pattern that will withstand the test of time and be sustainable. So the sustainable change happens with tiny iterations that, you know, little behavioral tweaks that you master and become kind of rote in your experience over time. And mm. the big changes that you seek really are a function of tiny little things that you do repeatedly, consistently, yeah. over extended periods of time. That's how you move the needle on, on anything, frankly. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think that's what James Clear says in Atomic Habits. It's like you think that it's like all of a sudden one thing happens and then, oh, there it is. But it's actually been all of the little things that you've done over and over and over again so many times. And then all of a sudden things do change, but you but it can look like it, it, it wasn't that. But it does take that commitment to it. So what's the mm -hmm. what's the shittiest part? Like, I think this is where for me, transformation and growth. And like, I feel like it's important for people to just know that there is a really, really shitty part. Like there's a, there's a, there's per, whether it's emotionally or in your immediate reality with people where you live, your job, whatever, like there can be, there, there usually is in my experience anyway, the bigger the transformation, usually it, it comes with a package that is like, wow, this is a lot right now. This is a very overwhelming amount of stuff. But I think that, that talking about the 
what I would call it, like the alchemy or the, the, the burning down of something so something else can be born and, and grow new from it is important for people to understand. Has that been your experience too? Well, you, yeah, you can't you can't be a phoenix unless you burn first, right? You got to right. burn in the flames That's in order this to is. kind of emerge with a greater wisdom, right? <laughs> but I think the thing is, Danica, <laughs> I mean, frankly, I think it all sucks. It's terrible. <laughs> like, there's nothing like sexy or romantic about like trying to make a change. It's a very difficult, uncomfortable you know, inelegant thing. And I, you know, to the extent that the internet paints it as, you know, something that's, that's easy or that can be accomplished, you know, without discomfort, I think is a disservice to people. I think it is important to tell people like, yeah, it yeah. fucking sucks. It's really hard. Like the reason it's hard is because whatever you're doing, whether it's gambling or you keep getting into the, you know, the same bad relationship or, you know, you drink too much or whatever, you know, the change is that you're trying to make, it's important to understand that that behavior exists for a reason. And the reason is it's serving a purpose. Like it's either taking you out of the, the, the discomfort of the moment, or it's a reflection of, you know, a childhood trauma, or it's a behavioral pattern that got cemented very early in life that makes you feel secure and in control. Whatever the nature of it, uh, the truth remains that you're doing it for a reason, and that reason is because it is serving you. It may be creating chaos in your life as well, mm -hmm. but it is comforting you in a certain way. And when you ask that person, look, you gotta stop doing that, or the person decides like, I can't do this anymore, you're asking them to break up with, with, a, with a good friend, right? They're having to, they have to like part ways with this thing that has been a comfort blanket oh, for yeah. them for a very so long familiar. time. And so the early days of, of, you know, navigating letting go of that is almost a morning and it's super painful and it's really uncomfortable. And there will be many moments where, you know, you're going to want to go back to it or mm -hmm. the discomfort of having to really confront the challenging emotions that start coming up when you don't have that comfort blanket sure. can be completely overwhelming. And it's why mastering a change or overcoming an addiction can be so difficult. And, you know, I use I don't use the word addiction cavalierly. Like I think addiction really lives on a spectrum. So on the far end of that spectrum, you have you know, the hardcore alcoholic or the heroin addict, et cetera. But, you know, I think that we all live somewhere along this spectrum because we're all engaging in behaviors that we know are not a reflection of our higher self. And yet we can't seem to stop doing them. And, you know, and, and they're not making our lives better. They're making our lives worse. And that's the classic definition of, of addiction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, looking inward and being honest with yourself about what those behaviors are and summoning the courage to redress them is a difficult thing. And then making that change, yeah, it's really difficult. And you're gonna be uncomfortable for quite a while before your neurochemistry resets or you find some other healthier activity or pursuit that can you know, provide you with, you know, whatever the errant behavior, you know, was doing for you. And that's why most people in, you know, a classic addiction sense either relapse or people just can't, you know, master a healthier behavior pattern and kind of retreat back to what, what, what they know, what's familiar and what's comfortable. As you were talking, I was going to ask you if 
repatterning or going through a transformation, learning something new, doing something new, dropping a habit felt to you um, as though it's it's an addiction and you totally answered it. It's I try and think about that when things are really hard. It's like I'm from a neurochemistry standpoint, my brain gets this dopamine sort of hit every time I repeat a pattern and it doesn't have to be a good one. And I, I try and convince mm-hmm. myself that like it's it's hard because I'm addicted to it. So then the question becomes like, are you willing to do something about that? Right. And if the answer is no, like I kind of like it and I'm going to stick with it, like no judgment, you know, like, okay, mm-hmm. maybe you need to keep doing it until things get crazier and then you're then you're ready to look at it. Because you still go to AA a lot as far as I understand. And what has that kind of taught you? Mm-hmm. Because this, as we're talking about it, can holistically be overlaid to everything. Like addiction is, just, like you said, a scale. So what are the what are the tools that, help you with this spectrum? Yeah, it's a little tricky because there's a tradition in Alcoholics Anonymous that, you know, we're not supposed to share at the level of press, radio and film. So I can only speak generally about about, you know, kind of the recovery modality. But it has been absolutely transformative in my life. Um, The 12 steps saved my life. They continue to save my life. And, you know, to this day, my number one priority is to stay sober and help another alcoholic achieve sobriety. And the minute I start to lose sight of that or I deprioritize that in my life is the minute that things in my life start to go a little bit sideways. And I've learned that Mm. the hard way as somebody who's been sober for a very long time. Um, But, you know, kind of the principles of this program, I think, are applicable to anyone and everyone because they're really tools for living they're about Mm. you know being being honest with yourself about your behavior uh you know taking inventory of that behavior and identifying where your character defects or your behavior contributed to how a situation went sideways it's Mm -hmm. about taking accountability and responsibility for that um and then you know amending those situations not just apologizing but literally trying to correct uh, situations that have gone sideways as a result of your behavior. And so now it's very rare that I have the impulse or the craving to drink or, or use a drug. It's really about emotional sobriety because without drugs and alcohol, um, I need something else to self-regulate and modulate my emotions. And if I'm not practicing these principles and taking advantage of these tools, um, then you know, it's like squeezing a, a, a water balloon, like something's always like popping up, you know, like, because my inner addict is always searching for that thing that can take me out of the moment and, you know, soothe me or give me that dopamine release. And it requires like constant vigilance. And sometimes I'm good at it and often I'm bad at it. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, a really core fundamental principle of this program is to really be of service to other people like that piece of like helping another alcoholic to achieve sobriety really it's about service so it's taking what you've what you've learned and you know trying to help other people who are in the situation that you were in once before and i try to practice these principles and you know this is a big thing like practice these in everything that you do and certainly in the construct of the podcast which Yes, it's a for-profit enterprise, and this is how I make a living, but you know, fundamentally, it's still an act of service. So I always try to approach the conversations and, 
and what transpires there from a perspective of, of, of giving to the audience something nourishing that can be helpful to them. Is that the purpose of the podcast, would you say? I understand this, that it's you monetize it, but what would you do if you didn't make money? Like of any of the facets of it, what what part of it would stay if you didn't get get paid? Well, I mean, I did do, I've been doing it for 10 years now and I think we didn't make any money for the first four or five years. So I did it for many years without oh, making wow. any money and, and actually never thought that it would make money. Like podcasting huh. was very different back in 2012 and 2013. So yeah. it's like, it's almost like a accidental happenstance that now it's become this thing that, that generates a, a fair amount of revenue. Would I still do it if it didn't make any money? Yeah, I, pr I probably would. Uh, it probably wouldn't, I would probably, but I would have to be doing a lot of other things in my life at the same time, whereas now this can really, you know, kind of uh, monopolize most of my focus. The books that you have, this voicing change, you have um, uh, vegan. Are you still a vegan? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have like, there was a cheese book. I remember you gave me a cheese book when I came to your house and did the interview and um, you have an ultra marathon or ultra athlete uh, book. You And then, but these voicing change books, they, they feel like coffee table books. Is that the intended nature of them to be inspirational kind of like coffee table books? Yeah, so in 2012, I wrote a memoir, Finding Ultra, that came out and mm -hmm. has done great, still sells. And then my wife and I did a couple cookbooks, and then she wrote this book called uh, This Cheese is Nuts, which is how to make yeah. plant-based cheese. And now she yeah. has a plant-based cheese company called Shrimu, uh, <laughs> which if you don't have it, I would love to send you some. Oh, cool. Um, and I then love the it. Voicing Change books, yeah, I'll, I'll get your address and I'll make sure you get some. It's Thank amazing. You. It's going to blow your mind. But anyway, uh, so the Voicing Change books are, we've done two volumes. We're working on a third right now. Yeah. And they are really as you mentioned, like a coffee table version of the podcast. It's beautiful photography. Each book has about 50 past guests who are featured. Um, and we kind of excerpt the best of that conversation and transcribe it with an introduction that I make. And we have some essays from some of the past guests. So for people who might've read uh, Tim Ferriss's book, Tools of Titans, it's sort of mm -hmm. a coffee table version of that mm -hmm. that is intended not for a giant audience, like we self-published these, which was its own kind of entrepreneurial experience of learning how to create a book in-house. Um, they're really for the fans of the podcast and also for potential sponsors or people that I wanna do business with, we can send it to them. And it's an example of you know how we're trying to um, craft content at the highest level of production value. Like everything that we're doing is, you know, from my mind, like, the intention is always to deliver at, at the highest level that we possibly can and sort of set the standard for the whole podcasting business about like how to do this well. Yeah, they're really, really cool. I love that because podcasts are obviously so much to digest. They're, you know, as we talked about, they can be hours long. And so to be able to create, um, create a moment, create an idea from that um, is cool, is so, so cool and so powerful. I get asked this all the time. Who have your favorite guests been? Who creates the most um, like concise, clear points that are really impactful? What are some of your best communicators? Because there's a lot of great guests. And when people ask me, I'm like, I'm mm -hmm. literally just got asked today by my sister's husband. And I'm like, there's barely any that I don't like. So it's hard for me to say, well, this is the best. It's really about who surprises me or um, who is really able to um, be 
very concise and clear with their words and help it land because not everyone is mm -hmm. incredible at getting a concept across into a tangible way. So who, who, who do you love and who makes the book in that way? Yeah, I mean, that's a, as you know, it's always a difficult question to answer. Like, I, yeah. I, I don't want to have to choose amongst my babies. And everybody that I invite onto the podcast is somebody <laughs> who I'm already in love with and right. I'm excited to communicate with. You know, I, there are, of course, you know, a couple favorites. And, and, and the favorites, again, it depends on what kind of category you're interested in. Like, on the subject of, of communication skills, um, I think you know Andrew Huberman is somebody who stands out and excels. Mm -hmm. uh, Stanford uh, Medical School professor, neuroscientist who started his podcast Huberman Lab, which is now like one of the most popular podcasts. And I think what is so the reason why he's become so successful, and that was like the YouTube version of the podcast that we did, which came out like before he even started his podcast. I think has twelve million views now, which blows my mind because it's basically a two hour neuroscience lecture that 12 million people would <laughs> like, tune into that. It's like, why do, why does, why did 12 million people decide to watch this video? And trying to answer that question, I think it's, it's, it's because he's taking challenging, um, scientific ideas that have high applicability in our lives and communicating incredibly complex ideas in a way, as I said at the outset, that um, challenges the audience, but not too much and never panders to them. Like he's like, I know that you can understand me if you're paying close attention. And he has such precision with his language. Like he not only is a master of his, of his specialty, he has this incredible talent and facility for language um, precise language in conveying these ideas that I think distinguishes him from mm. a lot of other people. Like most scientists are not communicators. They're in labs doing work. It's not their skill set. So it's pretty rare that I think you can find somebody who is adept in that way. And he certainly is. Um, mm. Beyond that, you know, my favorite guests are generally uh, ones that, that, that have undergone some kind of massive transformation. And you know, kind of at the top of that heap, I would put John McAvoy. I just did my second podcast with him recently, mm. which came out. But the first one that I did with him, which was about four or five years ago, he just blew my mind with the most insane story of transformation I had ever heard. Mm. This is a guy who grew up in a South London crime family and was reared from a very, very early age to be an armed robber almost mm. in a in a kind of goodfellas sense the uncles mm. and the you know cousins and all of that who who were very successful as as career criminals kind of grooming him at a very young age to do the same which he fulfilled that role and became one of great britain's most notorious criminals wow. on the lamb etc and ultimately it's a long story but ultimately um got busted, was serving a double life sentence, and while in prison, discovered uh, a facility for endurance by dint of experimenting with an indoor rowing machine in the gym, hmm. which to make a long story short, he ends up setting in a very short period of time, British and world indoor records on <laughs> that indoor rowing machine. Uh, and becomes this incredible athlete while incarcerated, 
ultimately gets a chance at parole, tells the parole officer that if he is released, that he's going to pursue a career as a professional athlete. They laughed at him. Ultimately, they parole him. He goes out into the world, tries to become a professional rower, realizes that because he didn't have the experience as a young person in the boat, like he couldn't quite get the feel, even though he had this incredible engine, and then pursues Ironman triathlon and becomes Nike's only uh, only sponsored professional Ironman triathlete, and huh. then goes on to this career of, of prison reform advocacy, testifying at 10 Downing Street, and has just become this extraordinary citizen intent on um, you know changing the way that we incarcerate people, um, uh, building fitness programs into the prison system. And the way he tells his story is so compelling and so mm. cinematic that it, it just it's it's mind blowing. And it it shows people, it demonstrates that no matter how far down you have gone, that there is always hope. And the way in which he refused to relinquish agency over his life or to lose hope in a possible future for himself is incredibly palpable. So, you know, I've got a couple other guests who have similar stories like that, but mm. I think those are among, you know, my favorite because they're yeah. so hopeful. And yeah. I think people learn through story and a story well, t well told is going to rent space in your consciousness in the way that you know just a conveyance of information isn't and so i have massive respect for you know not only people who have endured such tremendous obstacles but have the ability to tell that story in a way that you know can empower so many people what do you think we're here for like you said you talk about that story and you talk about how someone's able to still find a way with all of that, how you tell your story and have found a way. We've all been finding our way. What is this reality all about? Like, what are we, what do you think we're here for? You're coming in, you're coming in hot with the easy questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> the podcast yeah. is called Pretty Intense. Right. It's after I my know. book. It was the book. And then I realized I that like, it's a pretty good description of me. Like, I guess, you know, it's uh, I, I love the big questions. It's also, you know, sometimes when you get really specific, there's sort of like only this one little area to go. But when I, you get a little bit more broad, whatever comes to mind, I want to hear because you're uniquely different than me. Hmm. Yeah, well, that would this qualifies as a pretty intense question. I, I guess I would say, you know, what are we here? To, what, what are we here for? What are we here to do? I mean, I think we're here, we're here to have experiences, grow from those experiences, and then figure out how to contribute to a better world by virtue of what we've learned as a result of those experiences and the growth that we've encountered as a result of them. Yeah, I mean, growing is fundamental to me as well. Um, what do you think? Do you think that it's easier or harder in the world right now? Like there just seems to be a. I mean, the world in the last couple of years has just been so interesting and different. And at times it feels like timelines are so fast. And I don't know how spiritual you get or anything, but it just um, it's a it seems like a, a different reality we continue to evolve into. And so, um, you know, 
do you think it's easier or harder than ever? Do you think there is more good than ever or more bad than ever? I think it's a I think it's a little bit of both. I I would I would say that things are pretty intense right now for everybody, <laughs> right? It yeah. is very intense out there. Everything feels intense. Um, everything feels heavy, uh, and it's it's an interesting time because we have access, free access to so many tools to help us become better, happier, more fulfilled, et cetera. But we also have a culture that um, I think in certain ways coddles us and mm -hmm. tells us that the recipe for happiness is comfort and luxury and material accumulation. And so it's never been easier to be kind of sedentary, right? And mm -hmm. with the sedentary nature of our lives and the easy access through Postmates and delivery, you know, services to have our food, you know, sent directly to us. Like we don't have to do very much, right? It's uh, kind of the lap of luxury and as much as you want it. Yeah, and we've and we've deluded ourselves into thinking this will make us happy, but I think this is right. moving us further and further apart from happiness, because happiness is a function of of feeling alive and in order to feel alive mm. we have to inure ourselves to putting ourselves in 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 challenging circumstances to mm. get out of our comfort zone and try new things and you know our culture doesn't necessarily drive us in that direction which means we have to take responsibility for that ourselves it's insane to me that you know we live in a nation that is so unbelievably prosperous and yet We've never been more unhealthy as a society. Obesity rates, type two diabetes, heart disease, mm. these conditions, which are lifestyle, chronic lifestyle ailments, a result of the way, the choices that we make about how we live and what we eat and how we move our bodies are unnecessarily debilitating and killing millions and millions of people every year. Meanwhile, our rates of, of depression, anxiety, all of these, mental disorders are higher than they ever have been. We're medicating people, we're feeding ourselves terrible processed foods, and we're sitting on our couch and we have an endless stream of choices to make about entertainment to distract us from our reality or whatever it is that you know we're uncomfortable with in our lives. And so we're in this mild medicated state at all times Whenever we're bored, we can just pick this thing up and, and scroll through it. And so I think we're detached and distanced in a way that we never have been historically from what makes us human, which is community and analog experiences and moving our bodies and living uh, more in sync with the natural rhythms of the planet. All of these, you know, kind of historical primal uh, ways of being that are built into our DNA and are instinctual are anathema to the modern way of life. And, you know, so it's so it creates it creates this dissonance, I think, because, like I said at the outset, we do have access to all the answers. Information is not the problem. Behavior change is the problem uh, and trying to figure out how to um, merge the information with the behavior change, I, th I think is really key, but it's confusing for a lot of people right now. People get mixed messages about, about how to live. 
And again, you know, it requires, because a lot of these um, modalities of modern living are highly addictive, like, right. you know, whether it's net Netflix or your phone or processed food or the comfortable chair at your house, whatever it is, like, it's hard to break those habits because they've been specifically designed to addict you, frankly. So it's almost like not our fault. It's that the whole infrastructure of our society is driving us towards these behaviors that are making us unhealthy and unhappy. Design a society, design a culture, design a community, design a reality that would be the antidote to all of the problems that you just so well laid out. Yeah, so you're going to ask me to solve the world's problems, Danica. Yep. That is yep. a very intense. Well, you've a, talked more to than a 700 people. <laughs> you're really smart. Yeah. You're very articulate. You're very wise. You've been through a lot yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say, I would say, you know, first and foremost, like, I'm not going to tell you that I have the answers to all these problems, nor am I going to tell you that I've mastered the routine that that uh you know takes me out of the the allure and the pull of the world that we live in you're human i do do a few things i mean i yeah like i'm human and i'm on my phone too much and i get short with my kids from time to time and you know i like a good you know netflix crime show just like everybody else so i watch you know, Dahmer. I, live, I get it you know outside, yeah, okay right um <laughs> But I do, you know, have certain things that I make sure that I do, if not daily, as close to daily as possible. And that is a morning meditation practice, a journaling practice, um, getting out in nature every single day. And I do that through my endurance training, whether it's, you know, swimming, cycling, running or, or, or hiking or something like that. Like I try to get outdoors every single day. I sleep outdoors in a tent. I don't know if you know that, knew that don't about know me, that. but I actually sleep, I sleep outdoors and have for like the last three or four years at this point. Um, that's a whole other story that I can tell you about, but to kind of stay on point, um, you know, I try to have rules around the phone. Uh, I try to, make sure that I carve out time for friendships, no matter how busy I am. And that's something that I haven't been historically great at and I'm trying to do more. And that kind of leads into, you know, the, the broader, like what would the society, what would the ideal society look like for me? Uh, I think the answer to that is first appreciating that we're not, we're not gonna move backwards technologically, like the, the technological innovation curve is gonna continue. So accepting that as a truth and a immutable reality, how can we live more meaningful lives within that construct? I think, you know, if we could return to, you know, not to be too hippy dippy about it, but if we could live a more communal existence, I think that would solve a lot of our problems. Like it really does take a village to raise children, to feel um, like you're part of something bigger than yourself, to um, have, you know, mutual shared responsibilities for, uh, you know, things that, you know, a collective relies upon, like all of those things, I think, are what make us human. And living, uh, you know, on a cul-de-sac in a suburban neighborhood doesn't serve us in that regard. And, you know, as a parent and as somebody who has parents who are now elderly and you know, my, my, in, you know, my, my father-in-law who passed away, like we've all had experiences with, with how we treat our elders, which I think is abominable. Like 
it used to be they were part of the community and they were respected and these were the wise ones that we right. counted upon to share their experiences. Like that is not part of our culture whatsoever. We just mm -hmm. warehouse them once they reach an age in which they're no longer productive. Coming of age customs for young people where they have to, as a collective, you know, endure certain uh, rites of passage as they yeah. become older is also a tradition that historically has been part of what it means to be human. That's no longer the case. Like a vision quest around or something? A vision, yeah, some something, you know, like now we have, you know, the, the only thing we have now is like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and Bar Mitzvahs. But, you know, the roots of that, the antecedent of those rites of passage have been, you know, traditionally much more robust and challenging. And, mm. you know, I think we would be better off if every young person had to enter some form of public service after high school, whether that's military or Peace Corps or, you know, some kind of uh, uh, collective experience that is about service, because I think, you know, we're in a culture where we are, we value individualism and, material gain and status and and you know we're missing the bigger picture which is how are we all contributing to a greater whole and i think that used to be part of the american experience and now you know as we've arrived at this splintered fractured reality that we live in i don't feel like we have any kind of shared principles that allow us to cohere as a nation and i think a return to what could really bond us as a broader culture would be something that young people have to all do, like some kind of mandatory service, I think yeah. would be extremely beneficial. That and definitely elders and community. I mean, that used to be the norm. You were raised with aunts and uncles and grandparents and yeah it, listen it's hard to raise kids and you know even even if you have a you know two parents in the house like somebody's got to go do something it used to be there was tons of people around everybody's pitching in to help everybody else and we just live we're so far divorced from that reality now and and you know how about just sitting around the campfire <laughs> you know at night telling stories and sharing wisdom i mean this is where podcasting in a digital respect has kind of filled that void, I feel like. Like people traditionally didn't think that anybody would be able to listen to a long form conversation because we're so accustomed to the soundbite and you know the nature of what broadcast television uh, is like. And yet mm -hmm. podcasting has succeeded, not only succeeded, it's become this like really powerful medium because I think there is something deep within us that misses that campfire experience and the kind of, you know, vulnerable, authentic, natural feel of mm -hmm. human connection. Uh, and I think podcasting on some level is, is serving that need that has been so long un underserved. Do you think that maybe there is a problem with what is generally characterized as success? When you ask somebody, you know, that's truly been successful at something or older and has had a lot of experience and you say, what is success? They're not going to answer with, I made a lot of money, right? But still, as you're growing up, you still success and something that drives you every, you know, each and every day to some degree is money and is success in that way so that you can buy what you want and do what you want. And it's some sort of measure of success. The money is like a measurement almost. So what if there, do you think that that is 
maybe one of the problems and that maybe success needs to be elevated in the area of raising really good children or um, having a really balanced and harmonious family and, you know, or just being joyful and fulfilled. I mean, there's so many successful people that aren't joyful and fulfilled because of chasing mm -hmm. this sort of illusion of success that comes in the form of of money. And so I think about when you're talking about sitting around a campfire and I'm like, what would facilitate that? Like what would facilitate the environment where you're with your with the, with a community of your family and your close friends? And I think what takes it apart and why that doesn't happen is because people go and they move here for a job, they move here for a job, and everybody gets dispersed because work tends to take us to these different places. So what is it that's going to give us that drive to live in a certain place to, and we are driven to succeed, driven to be successful, and it seems like maybe there needs to be a new definition for uh, really, really what success is. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you that we need to redefine success, but the way that we define success cannot be extricated from what it means to be American, because America was founded on this notion of rugged individualism, back to this subject, where we value the individual over the collective. And with that, the priority becomes how are you gonna get yours? It's all mm -hmm. about like me, 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 and what am I accumulating? And how does that measure up status-wise against the Joneses, my neighbor, my colleagues, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And we've deluded ourselves into believing that happiness is a factor of how high you can climb that particular ladder on the, press, you know, on the, on the precipice to summiting the apex of individual success, right? Mm. Um, and this is completely backwards. And there are plenty of modern Western cultures that you know, have a completely different view on this and, and thus value a very different definition of success. Like if you live in someplace like Copenhagen, it's completely different. Mm. Uh, so there is something uniquely American about this. Okay. And I think now we're, we're kind of being hoisted on our petard for this sensibility. And it's providing, in my opinion, an opportunity to deconstruct this and really look at it in a culture in which so many people are unhappy, despite, you know, so many things being more accessible than they ever have been. Like in the history of mankind, like things are, are pretty good. We tend to look at how everything is wrong and terrible and all of that, but you know, we're safer, uh, healthcare is better, prosperity is much higher. All of these sort of you know, factors uh, statistically indicate that like the world that we live in now is the, be it's right. the best time to be alive, right? So if it's the best time to be alive, like why are we more unhappy than we used to be? And I think it's because of this focus on the self at the cost of mm. the collective. Mm. And if we can switch or redefine our notion of success to contemplate at least on some level how we're contributing as opposed to what it is that we're extracting. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that the, the, the kernel of true happiness uh, you know, mm -hmm. resides in there. And I, I know for myself, I'm a selfish person. I'm ambitious. I have things that I want to accomplish. I'm competitive. I can be petty, all that stuff. But when I can set that aside 
and show up for somebody else, even a very small way, I walk away from those experiences feeling much happier and better about myself. Mm-hmm. That that experience will fade, and I'll revert back to you know being my whoever I am. Um, so it's a it's a practice, right? But I think the more that we can you know inhabit uh, the experience of of approaching every interaction, uh, whether it's business or personal or whatever, with the mindset of like, how am I contributing to this? How can I leave this situation? Mm. Um, with these people being better off than they were before, as opposed to like, where's mine and what am I gonna get out of this? Mm. To me, fundamentally, like that's the beginning of the shift. And, you know, in my experience, and I've had high highs and low lows and successes and failures, et cetera. But to me, success is, is knowing that you contributed more than you extracted and success is also a function of like how much domain you have over how you spend your time, right? So the more control that I have over the decisions I make about how I spend my time, that's a huge success for me. That's mm-hmm. time that I can contribute to friends uh, and to my family and to my relationships. Uh, and when I do that from a contributory state of mind, like I just, I feel happier and better. And as somebody who's spoken to centenarians and old people, and I'm sure you have as well, like they will all tell you exactly what you said at the outset, which is, you know, when they're at the end of their life reflecting backwards, they never say like, I wish I worked more. They say, I wish I spent more time with my kids or I wish I had, you know, been a better friend, et cetera. It's all about like relationships and the extent to which they contributed to those relationships. Would you say then that that's your purpose to contribute, to be of service? What, how would you characterize? Because they feel a little different, like defining success and then purpose. Do you think they go, are they the same or are they different for you? I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about success, but I do think about purpose. Yeah. You know, I don't know that we all, we all have one purpose, but I would say Fair. a purpose that I try to fulfill is is to you know is to be a conduit of wisdom and to be a servant to positive change individually and collectively yeah you are but you're not getting out of this interview without answering one last question why do you sleep in a tent oh no <laughs> oh, you, you want to know I mean, you go. said you would explain why so, you sleep in a tent. So you just yeah. have to end with helping because right. we, we might all start sleeping in tents when you tell us why. Sure. Uh, well, it's sort of a sleep hygiene thing that, that began many years ago. My wife and I uh, would, would, would always like have this sort of battle because she liked the bedroom warm and I like it cold and neither of us were ever happy. Like she's under all the covers and I'm on top of the covers sweating. So it was always too hot or too cold. Neither of us were happy. And we have, you've been to my home, we have this flat roof. Beautiful. And there's like a wall that goes up from one side. Yeah. And one summer we would do these uh, kind of movie nights on the roof where all the kids and my wife and I would, would get sleeping bags and bean bags and we'd lay on the roof and we would project movies onto that wall. And one of those evenings, I just fell asleep on the roof under the stars and woke up the next day having had the best night of sleep that I could remember. And I, just, I couldn't 
I couldn't believe how deeply I slept. Like something about the cool desert air. I live in Southern California. Um, just agreed with me. And I told Julie uh, that day, I was like, I'm going to sleep out on the roof again. Like that was an amazing experience. And she was like, knock yourself crazy. out. <laughs> so I just started sleeping in a sleeping bag on the roof of our house. But I would wake up covered in condensation because the dew and everything like that in the morning. Sure. And I was like, well, this is great. Like I'm having the best sleep of my life. <laughs> and Julie can set the temperature in the bedroom however she wants. But I love it cold. To me, it almost, you know, like if it's down in the 40s, that's like perfect. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I ended up getting a tent and then I had a tent on a roof for a while and had many different incarnations of the tent <laughs> over the years. And then this past year for my birthday, my wife got me like a proper glamping tent, like on a wooden deck. This, so I have like a beautiful kind of room now with a bed in it. So it's not like I'm sleeping on the ground or anything like that, but I do sleep outdoors. And there's something about the cool evening air um, that just, I don't know, it soothes my soul. And I just have the experience of sleeping more deeply on a consistent basis. And sleep is elusive for me. Like I've struggled with my sleep quality and this has gone a long way towards, you know, providing me with the level of restfulness that allows me to kind of, you know, do all the things in the world that I want to do. And I, I, I've just, I started it way back then and I just, I still love it. Wow. Well, there'll be uh, a new wave of people out there listening that struggle with their sleep that are yeah. going to think, I'm going to sleep outside tonight and see how that goes. So thank yeah. you. And listen, I don't live in Vermont. You know, I live in Southern right. California. So I realize right. like this is. Wait, you know, are the doors open? Do you have everybody. the tent? Like, are the tent doors open? I keep them. Yeah, I keep them open. I keep them you open have, like, at night a bug when net? I'm sleeping. Uh, well, I have, I can zip it shut, but there aren't like bugs aren't a big problem where I am. So I like it. I like to keep it as open as possible. All right. Yeah. All right. Sounds like a solution to me. Mm -hmm. there you well, go. thank you very much. And thank you for your contribution and your service and five years of doing a podcast and not knowing if you'd ever make money and look at you now. And it really just goes to show how, when you just surrender to what calls you and what feels right, um, amazing things happen. So I'm excited to see what the next transformation will be. And I'll ask to talk to you. Hopefully I don't have to crash and burn in some kind of crazy way to transform again. We'll see what that yeah. looks like. But anyway, I, I really appreciate the time today. Those were like very challenging questions. Like I, I, I hope I, I hope I followed through appropriately, but like you, 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 you had me, you had me really thinking there, Danica. You were amazing. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.